Excellent. Good afternoon. Thank you. This is very exciting. I'm very much looking forward to this. I hope that you all are too. Um, I'm very aware that I have been kind of studying the book of Job for quite a while, uh, and it might feel a little bit weird to kind of suddenly come straight into it uh, without really knowing what's going on. Uh, But hopefully that will kind of make sense as we work through it, and you won't feel like this is all a bit weird, I don't know what's going on. You'll kind of be able to, we'll try and work through some of it slowly. Uh, when, Dad and, when me and Dad and Rich were kind of thinking about um, me, me kind of doing a sermon and what I was going to do it on, uh, one of the pieces of advice someone else gave me was, the grass is always greener on the other side when you're picking your own sermon, when you're picking what to preach on. And what they meant by that was, whatever you pick on, the week before, you're going to wish you picked something else. <laughs> and I can kind of relate to that, because I'm so excited about going through the book of Job. It's a fantastic book, but at the same time, I'm very much daunted. I'm not quite sure that I'm going to do it justice. Uh, one of the commentaries that I read uh, on Job, in the introduction, the guy almost apologised. Uh, he, he, he led the, his church through the book of Job rather hastily in four months. We're going to do it in two weeks. But hopefully, this is not going to be a kind of full overview of every single verse, but more uh, kind of looking at some of the key themes. And there are two themes that run all the way through Job, right from the start to the end. Uh, And I kind of want to just work through some of those, one this week and one next week. Uh, The one next week is possibly what you would expect when we come to the book of Job. If I kind of did a little bit of word association and said Job, the first thing that people would think is man of God, fears God, righteous, holy. So next week we're going to look at Job's faith. This week, possibly, we're going to look at something that you may not expect when you come to the book of Job, and it would be his humanity and his honesty. And those two things, they run all the way through the book of Job. They're almost like, they're almost like wrestling with each other. Um, have I got... Yeah, there we go. So this is a title, Grappling with God. We'll understand what that means in a minute. Uh, And what we're going to do, Mum read to us Job chapter 3, which was a little bit morbid uh, and a little bit painful to read, but I think that is good, and we'll work through that in a minute. We're going to look very briefly at Job chapter 1 and 2 and do a whistle-stop tour of what actually happens, so you can understand the context, Uh, and then we'll kind of look at his response and how he responds to his suffering and what's what's involved there. So hopefully we won't be too long. Um, Before we do that, I just want to make two points that kind of just sit um, behind this. And everything I say can kind of be run through those two points. Um, And they're these. Number one, Job is very long. That's fairly obvious. You probably know that. Job is 42 chapters long. It's a long book. Uh, And number two, Job is mainly poetry. So apart with the exception of Job chapter 1 and 2, parts of 32 and part of 42, the whole book of Job is poetry. And one of the questions that I was asking myself as I was preparing for this is, if God is going to put a book in the Bible on suffering, why didn't he just get Paul to write one? (laughs) Paul's pretty good at writing letters. Why didn't he just write a book on suffering? Five chapters, this is how to deal with suffering. It's so much easier. But God gave us this 42-chapter book of metaphors and repetition when dealing with the issue of suffering. And there's reasons for that, and hopefully we'll work some of that out But you can kind of just have those there. That's kind of like the way the book of Job is written. There's reasons for that. Okay, so let's let's take a look at what's going on. If you flick back a page, 
uh, to Job chapter 1. We'll kind of figure out who this guy is. Uh, I'm very conscious that some of you may not have read the book of Job or may not have read it in a while. So um, we'll just kind of look at who Job is and what he did. So it says in Job, in Job chapter 1 and verse 1, in the land of us there lived a man whose name was Job. And the first thing we know is that we don't really know when Job lived and we don't really know where us is. We kind of have a vague idea. Us is probably not in Rotherham. But we don't really know where he lived or when he lived. Job is a random guy in a random time in a random place. Could have been anyone. There wasn't anything particularly special about this man, Job. Uh, But we learn that Job was considered blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Uh, When the Bible talks about Job being blameless, it doesn't mean that Job is sinless, but it more means that Job is blameless in God's sight, in that Job understood who God was, who understood who he was, and understood that God was going to provide some kind of way for redemption. In essence, Job was a pre-Christ Christian, if that makes sense. He understood that there there was kind of something wrong between him and God, and that God was going to provide redemption, but he didn't quite know how that was going to work out like we do, because we know Jesus. Um, so Job was blameless and upright. He was a good man, a godly man. He feared God. The next thing we learn, if we come down, is that he was a wealthy man. He had lots of stuff. He was a little bit of a celebrity of his age. People knew him. People wanted to know him. And he was a rich but godly man at the same time. The scene, uh, and we kind of see this like little nice idyllic scene with his family and it's all really good and he's having a really nice life um, and that's good. And then the scene changes. The curtains close, blackout opens up and now we're in the heavenly court. We've now moved away from Job and we're in heaven and God's there and it's God's angels are there and the devil's there. And this is one of the most harrowing scenes in the whole Bible. If this was a film, we'd be screaming. What? What? What is God doing? We learn that God says to the devil, have you seen my servant Job? Look how great he is. The devil says, well, he's only that good because you've given him everything he he has. And then God says, okay, you can have him. Destroy everything he has. As long as you don't lay a finger on him, you can do whatever you want to him. And we're like, what? What on earth is God doing? Uh, And the devil goes out. The devil does just that. Job's family are kind of killed, his house burned down, he loses everything. In the space of a day, everything is lost to him. And then we come back to and and we see that Job continues to praise God within that. And then in Job chapter 2, the devil comes back uh, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? He's still trusting in me, even though he's done all that. And the devil says, well, it's because he's got his health. If he didn't have health, then he'd curse you. And we're thinking at this point, God must, you know, that's enough. Stop there. But no, for some reason, God says, okay, then you can have him. You can, take, you can destroy him. As long as you don't kill him, you can inflict as much pain as you possibly can on Job. And we're like, what? What on earth is God doing? And like, if this was a film, we'd be screaming. We'd be on the edge of, what, what on earth? And Job has no idea of all this. Job is just living his life, being godly, being normal, And in the space of a few days, everything he has is completely and utterly destroyed. And we see that, you know, these three friends come and talk to him. And then we get into chapter 3 and Job's initial response, which is in itself pretty harrowing. So that was very much a whistle-stop tour 
You can preach countless sermons on Job chapter 1 and 2, and we're not going to do that. And I'm sorry that that's been a little bit fast. Hopefully, that if you, if you kind of understand that. If you have any questions, ask me afterwards, so you kind of can get a full picture of kind of the, the, just what happens to this. This is a real man who lived in a real time, who had real family, real things, real emotions, and in the space of a day, everything was torn away from him. So just four points very quickly to make on, uh, on, that, on Job chapter 1 and 2 would be, number one, God is always completely and utterly in control. No matter whether you think God is good or bad, he's in control in this story. Nothing happens outside of God's permission there. The devil has to come and say, you know. Um, but uh, equally, the devil is powerful. It's not God that does this to Job, it, it's the devil. Number three, there's always a purpose behind suffering. Uh, I don't really want to speculate too much as to what the purpose behind Job's suffering is. And I definitely don't really want to speculate as to the purpose of what our suffering would be. But we can see that this is not just random. This is not just God kind of forgot to wake up or kind of woke up on the wrong side of bed. There's kind of meaning there. There's a purpose there, even though Job has no idea what's going on. And then finally, the key to a lot of the book of Job would be that both the righteous and the wicked suffer and prosper. Okay? So we we live in a world where good things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. We know that. We don't live in a film world where the good guys always win and the bad guys always lose. We live in a world where sometimes bad things happen to good people and sometimes the bad people get away with it. Uh, And that's something that the friends later in Job, they just can't really equate and uh, so that's that. So four things there. God is always in control. The devil is a powerful being. There is almost always purpose behind suffering. Uh, and there's no correlation between being good and suffering and punishment in this world. So that is very much a whistle-stop tour of the first two chapters of Job. And I'm sorry that that has been so fast. And I hope that that kind of is clear in your heads. This, this is a real man who really did suffer in this way he was a godly guy Why, what on earth is God doing <laughs> that is the question really so we get to chapter 3 and, uh, and let, let's kind of just dive in and have a look at the Job's humanity and the honesty that Job displays we're going to look at chapter 3 and then do a little bit of flicking around in kind of chapter 7 and 6 and blah 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 so you kind of have nimble fingers to be able to work through you know all the pages and stuff Um but the, the question, I, I, I've got f- like three points and then one point that kind of encompasses the other points. And the question that I want you to ask yourself as we work through this, is this the response of a godly man? We said at the start that Job was a man who understands God, he understands sin, he understands redemption. But is this the response of a man who is a godly guy? Is this the response of someone who gets God? Okay? So, think about that. As we work through. So, number one. Oops. Job is depressed. Okay? If we look at chapter three, it's just utterly harrowing. This is Job's first response to the suffering. And what does he say? The first thing he says in verse three is, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. He curses his own birth. 
If you look at chapter verse 11, sorry, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came out of the womb? Look at verse 16. Uh, why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child? Job wants to die. He's compl- the word that we use in our culture is suicidal, isn't it? If, this, if Job was living now, there'd be rehab and we'd be kind of look, wanting to look after him. He's completely, he's lying in the gutter in his own sweat and blood, pleading with God to kill him. Uh, in Job chapter 6, he acknowledges that some of his words may have been a little bit rash in verse 3, but he continues in this suicidal vein. Uh, verse 8 to 10, oh, that I might, of, of chapter 6, Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Is that the response of a man who understands that there's a purpose behind suffering and that God is good? What what is he saying here? I I wish that God would would just kill me. Uh, In chapter 7, verse 16 says, I despise my life, I would not live forever. Leave me alone, my days have no meaning. Leave me alone, God. Get lost. I don't want anything to do with you, God. That's what he's saying. Uh, one commentator one says of this of Job. Job is begging God to ease him or end him. And I like that. Job is, God, let, take this punishment away from me or finish me off. Seal the deal. You're, kind of, you're inflicting all this torment on me. Well, just finish me off. Job can't, you know, it's, it's one of two things, ease me or end me. And is that, is that the response of a man who understands suffering and understands God and understands things? Well, it doesn't seem like it. This is just a man who's completely and utterly depressed. And now we might say that if there was ever a person in history who had a right to be depressed, it would be Job. But still... Is, is this the response of a godly guy? That might be a trick question. But, um, just, you know. uh, the second thing is, Job is angry. Uh, there are reasons for his anger. Everyone is against him. Uh, he feels like he has lost his dignity. He talks about be, feeling uh, worse than a slave. Life has become meaningless for him. We kind of feel in our life that we like to know where we're going, don't we? I know that I'm kind of working in a church, Cape Ray, and then university, blah, blah. Where's Job going to be in five years? (laughs) Still lying in the side of the road? You know, life has become meaningless in There's no purpose. There's no future. Uh, And most importantly, he feels he has been unfairly treated. There's this sense that Job is adamant that he is innocent. He has not done anything wrong to justify such suffering and such pain. If you look at... um, Chapter 7 and verse 21, it says, Why do you not pardon my offences and forgive my sins? For I shall soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, you will search for me, but I shall be no more. Wait a minute. Is that what? Is that Job talking? You will search for me, but I shall be no more. What it sounds like Job is saying there is, One day, God, you will realise that you've been unfair to me. You'll come looking for me, but I'm not. I'm not going to come anywhere near you. What? Is that a guy that understands God and understands redemption? This is just a guy who is completely angry at God. What is God doing? I don't deserve this. I don't, this, is not, this is not fair. 
I don't want anything to do with God. He's angry. It's like, it, the, chapter 20, verse 21 there, it's like a little child who thinks that things are unfair and runs away from their parents saying, don't come near me, I don't want anything to do with you ever again. Isn't it? Next one. Job is confused. It's a little bit of a morbid slide, but we'll live with it. Job is confused. If you look at chapter, chapter 8, uh, summarizes kind of this guy Bildad's argument, which is fairly stale, and it's just kind of churning over the same things. We're kind of going to talk a little bit more about the three friends next week. Uh, but their argument is essentially, if you do bad in your life, you get punished. If you do good, you, your life is good. If you stub your toe, then... No, if you swear, you stub your toe. If you kill someone someone in your family dies. That's their argument, really. And they're saying to Job, there must be some kind of hidden sin in your life that you're keeping hidden, and that's why this suffering is happening to you. And then what does Job say in response to that? Chapter 9 and verse 2. I know that this is true. What? That's not true. (laughs) We know that's not true. We know that their argument is, is not right. We know that that is not the way our world works. And yet Job seems, in a way, be agreeing with them. This is why you shouldn't spin verses out of context. (laughs) But that's what Job seems to be saying there. Take a look at um, Job chapter 12 and verse 13. To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What a great verse. What a great verse that is. That's a God that I want to worship. To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. If we're ever going to have fridge magnet verses, that should be one. Yeah? To God belong... I want to serve a God that is wise, powerful, counseling and understanding. That's fantastic. That's what Job thinks of God. But then you skip forward uh, a few chapters to Job chapter 19 and verse 21. And Job says, Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me. Is that the same God that's wise and counselling and loving and understanding? God, have pity on me, friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Wait a minute, those two things don't seem to add up. If we take a look at um, uh, chapter 9 and verse 22, I'm sorry for all the flicking about. We'll get there. Job chapter 19 and verse 22, Job says a horrific statement. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. What? He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. That's not a fridge magnet verse. (laughs) I don't really want to stick that on my fridge. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. It's not a very nice verse. God doesn't come off very well in that verse. (laughs) It's no wonder that people come to the Old Testament and think that God is vindictive. It's no wonder that the three friends then see red. How can you say that about God? He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Very nice. And is that the same God that is powerful and counselling and wise? Well, those two things don't seem to add up. But if you flick forward a couple of verses to verse 24, we see that Job says, if it is not he, then who is it? Job's kind of grappling with this. Well, who is it? If, it's not, if God is loving, then who is it that's give, causing this suffering for me? It can't be God, because God's loving. But who is it? 
Job is kind of go- what Job is essentially doing here is he's saying God is just, but I'm struggling. I, I'm, why is this happening? God is holy, but what's going on? I, Job is completely and utterly confused. He's trying to equate God's justice and grace and love with the horrific, awful suffering that's going on in his life. And, there, and, he's, and he's holding fast to that, but he can't work out that. And the whole thing is just a... It's all just confused in his mind. And we can see why, can't we? We can see why. Essentially, what Job is saying here is, why? Why would a loving God do this to me? It's a question that we get asked quite a lot. What, if, a, if our God is going to be loving, all loving, and our God is going to be all powerful... Why on earth is there suffering in the world? Surely God is either not loving enough to do something about that or not powerful enough. That's the question Job's really grappling with. I know that God is good. I I hold fast to those things, but at the same time, why is this happening? But I I know that I'm sinful, but that's not really the answer. That's what's going on in his head. He's grappling, he's thinking, and it doesn't make sense. Okay, my fourth point. Hopefully this will clear it all up. Job is in pain. That may seem fairly obvious. (laughs) That may seem quite obvious, and it is obvious. But what is it about Job's pain that is so bad? Well, it's not Job's physical pain, because that is bad. That is painful for Job. The thing that is most painful for Job is the feeling that he has been rejected by God, by his maker, by his creator. By his father. If you look at Job chapter 6 and Job chapter 7, I won't read it, but Job essentially describes God as an archer who is firing poison arrows at him. You know, God is up in heaven, 10 points, or a headshot. But not only that, Job is thinking about that with the backdrop that Job is innocent. So God is just up in heaven thinking, hey, there's an innocent guy. That's, that's what Job is essentially saying about God. And that, 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 that sense of injustice is just the most painful thing for Job. He can't equate that. Injustice is a massive thing uh, for us as humans. We're built with a sense of inju- uh, justice, aren't we? Kids feel this so powerfully. How many times do you hear a kid shout, it's not fair? <laughs> that's why... And kids often don't know the bigger picture. Kids are, and sometimes the kids are right, and it genuinely is unfair. But that, that's the cry of a child, isn't it? It is not fair. You can't do that to me. I don't deserve that. One of, um, one of the last uh, public executions in Britain was a Welshman named Timothy Evans. Um, you don't really need to know his name or his nationality. But um, that was one of the last. And he was convicted of murdering his wife and his daughter. You know, fairly normal, fairly standard at that time. It's fairly standard in this time. In some countries, in America, if you murder someone, that you deserve to die. A lot of people think that's cool. There's, there's, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that, really. Except that a few years later, that guy was found to be innocent. And actually, somebody else had done it and then admitted to it. And what must have been going through his head on his last day on earth? Is it, I'm about to die? Well, yes, partly, but it's I'm about to die and I'm innocent. That's what's, that's what's going through his head. And Job's pain is unique and real because he feels rejected by God 
That's what's powerful for Job. And is that a godly reaction? Is, is that a godly reaction? Well, actually, yes. Because if someone is a true believer and is going to hold to those things about God, then actually, that should lead them to say, how can a God like that do that? Shouldn't it? Hopefully, let me read to you a quote. Hopefully this should just kind of clear it up a little bit. Then this is a quote from a survivor of Auschwitz. Uh, the Holocaust if ever there was a point in history where God just must have fallen asleep, it would be the Holocaust, wouldn't it? <laughs> and this was a survivor of, of, of Auschwitz. It never occurred to me to question God's doings or lack of doings while I was an inmate of Auschwitz. I was no less or no more religious because of what the Nazis did to us, and I believe my faith in God was not undermined in the least. It never occurred to me to associate the calamity we were experiencing with God to blame him because he didn't come to our aid. Now, doesn't that sound like a fine example of resilient faith? And we could, we could substitute, this is what Job should have said, really. It never occurred to me to question God, or God's doings, or lack of doing. I didn't think that. My faith in God was not undermined in the least while I was suffering. But actually, that is the mark of an unbeliever. A true believer who is going to be anchored in God's justice and grace should rail passionately against the injustice, shouldn't he? We're kind of studying in our, in our gospel communities all about the, the Trinity. And if God is going to be a God of love, who in eternity was loving the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and the creation is an overflow of God's love, how are you going to equate that with suffering? Those two things don't add up. And for us to say, just have faith, let's just praise God, that doesn't really get to the crux of the issue, does it? And Job kind of understands that because he's grappling with these things. Let me, let me quickly take you to Matthew uh, and chapter 27. Many of you will know what, where, where, where I'm going here. Matthew chapter 27. So Jesus uh, is, uh, has just been in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has just kind of talked... Uh, and, and asking God to take this cup away from me. And he's on the cross here. Matthew chapter 7 and verse... Sorry, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. Um, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means in English, helpfully, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is so painful for Jesus on the cross is not the crucifixion, but the fact that God has rejected him. And he feels the full force of God's wrath. That's what... Sometimes I think, why, why? Jesus knows the future. Jesus knows why he's dying on the cross. Jesus knows that in three days he's going to rise again. Why can't he just grit his teeth and get on with it? <laughs> but isn't that... You know, why is this so painful for Jesus? Well, it's because he feels the full force of God's wrath and the fact that God has forsaken him. And he can't... He is completely crushed by that. And as Christians, we might be able to see the future. We might be able to have faith. We may be able to see this, you know, meaning in suffering and God is good and sovereign. But ultimately, we will still be taken to our knees. How can a loving father do that? It is so unfair. The main thrust of what I'm trying to get at here is Job is painfully honest in this book. And that is okay. That is not an example of Job kind of being sinful here. That, that is, it is okay 
for Job to be grappling. Our response to suffering should not be, God is great, let's just praise him and worship him and have faith and that's good. Because that doesn't really deal with the human. That doesn't really, all you'll do there is just end up piling more guilt on people who can't do that. And then you've got suffering and guilt. What is needed is an honest grappling with it. When dealing with suffering, it is important to have a balance between the anchor that is our faith, and that's really where we're going to go next week, so that's good. We need an anchor in faith in God and faith in God's attributes, but we also need to know that we are not God. We are not mini-gods. We're humans. We're made in God's image. We're made to have a relationship with him, Uh, and enjoy his amazing creation and glorify him but we are not God what's more we are fallen sinners and actually very far away from God the answer is not to just have a blind faith that just says trust in God and everything will be okay just focus on the cross and it'll be okay you know Jesus died your sins there's resurrection we're going to go that's all true and I definitely don't want to undermine that but that on its own That isn't really honest. That isn't human. That actually leads to quite a weak theology and and a destructive and devastating consequences. Equally, the answer is not just to wallow in self-pity and cursing God willy-nilly. A balanced approach is needed that is anchored in God's justice and grace, but fleshed out with prayerful honesty, grappling and sincere wrestling with God. And so the title of this talk is An Honesty That Surrounds Our Faith, or That Should Surround Our Faith. Amidst all the darkness, pain, and confusion, amidst all the things that Job potentially gets wrong, and he gets a lot wrong, Job is not kind of some kind of marker that we need to base our life, you know, that he got it, let's copy him. That's not true. Job is not some kind of super godly, super holy, let's just make sure we do everything that he does. Because Job is a sinful guy. But Job kind of gets the dynamic that it is important to trust in God and have faith, but at the same time couple that with an honest, sincere, grappling, wrestling with God. It is okay to think, to question, to pray. And actually, that in itself should lead us to a fuller understanding of God in itself. Uh, I was just kind of talking to someone about, uh, not this, but something else, and they asked me to sum up, I think it was one of my Yorkshire training talks, they asked me to sum up my talk in one word. And I tried to do this for Job. It's probably not a good idea. Don't do that. (laughs) But if I was going to try, I think a good word would be grappling. Grappling. It is okay to grapple, to wrestle, to pray, to question, to think, to analyse, to, in a godly way, doubt. That is good. That is okay. The last thing I want to do is undermine how important faith is, and that's why I'm doing this over two weeks, so I can talk about faith next week and couple those things together, because they're both needed. But Job, we said at the start that Job had an understanding of God, had an understanding of himself, had an understanding of redemption and suffering. But through all this, Job comes out with a better understanding of God, a better understanding of himself, a better understanding of redemption, not a full understanding, but his relationship with God is closer. And that is not because he just kind of gritted his teeth and said, let's just have faith and get through this. That's because he grappled and he wrestled with God and he thought, how can this actually be? 
Now, the issue of suffering, there is not a complete, conclusive answer. And that is why Paul didn't write a letter. (laughs) That's why there is not a book that says, there's the answer, go and do it. But a much better answer is this one. To be able to say, you need to have an anchor of faith. An anchor that is rooted in God and his attributes, his faith, his goodness, who God is. But couple that and flesh that out with an honesty, a grappling, a prayer, a wrestling with God. And that in itself will lead us to a fuller understanding of God. Amen. Um, I hope that that kind of makes sense. Uh, Next week we're going to talk a little bit about Job's, well, a lot about Job's faith and kind of what that is anchored in. And the last thing I want to do is just say you need honesty because that's just pathetic. (laughs) You've got to have that faith. You've got to have that anchor in God. And if you have that and you're centred on that, but flesh it out with honesty, then that will lead to a better understanding of God. Let me pray, um, and then we will sing our final song, and then Rich will come up and give us some notices. Father God, I thank you that you are a sovereign God. I thank you that you are a great God. A God who loves us, a God who cares for us, uh, a God who who wants the best for us. Lord, I thank you that you um, died for us and made it possible that we could be with you. Made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. And I thank you for those things, Lord, and I ask that you would help us to focus on those things, even amidst suffering. But Lord, I also pray that you would help us to be honest in our suffering as well. Lord, help us to grapple with these questions. Lord, give us a sense of of kind of not just wanting to have blind faith, not just wanting to grit our teeth and get through it, and not just wanting to kind of push on to the to, and then there'll be an eternity in heaven, but to wrestle with you, Lord, and and to and to grapple with who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a sense of that and show us that if we do that, that will lead to a fuller and greater understanding of you. And I pray that we can worship you more through that. Amen.